Welcome to RaiseTheLineWithOsmosis.org. Seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi everybody, I'm Michael Carice. Even though women are the backbone of the healthcare system in the United States, comprising 77% of the patient-facing workforce, studies have shown they're not paid or promoted equitably. And this gender equity problem extends to medical education as well. Well, our guest today, Dr. Nancy Spector, is focused on improving this situation through her work as Executive Director of the Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine, or ELAM program, which has been making an impact in this area for many years now. In fact, approximately half of all female deans at U.S. medical schools are graduates of the ELAM program. Dr. Spector has also been a professor and senior leader at the Drexel University College of Medicine for over a decade, and we're very happy to welcome you to Raise the Line today. Hi, thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you. So I want to start first just by learning more about you, what first got you interested in medicine and particularly pediatrics. Sure, absolutely. Um, I came from a family of educators. I was the first person to go to medical school in my entire family. I only had one brother and my parents were history majors. My brother was a history major. All day long, we talked about history and English and the conversation was about everything they were doing related to those subjects. And I was a science person. So I felt like the odd person out. Um, And so over time I thought, wow, I really like science but maybe I'll be a science teacher. And then my parents, who were both um, started as educators in the 60s, said, my brother and I, we could do anything we wanted in our lives and our careers, but we could not be teachers. They felt <laughs> right? They felt that the teachers were underappreciated, undercompensated, not as well regarded as they felt they should be. So they encouraged us to look into other things. My brother became a corporate lawyer and I went into medicine. And I went into medicine really not even knowing what medical school was. I remember in my first year of medical school, learning that in your third and fourth year, you did rotations, and I had never heard of that before. So I really had a lot of growth and learning to do in medical school. Luckily, I went to a school that was very nurturing, encouraging, and along the way, I found that I was incredibly drawn to children. Um, I loved the thinking about their development over time. I loved how resilient they are when they're sick um, and having the opportunity to do preventative care, healthcare over time was really what drew me into pediatrics. My eyes opened up to academic medicine when I became a resident. I did my first inpatient medicine attending with a person named Dr. Daniel Shidlow, who is the Dean Emeritus of uh, Drexel. He was my boss for over 30 years and he was my first attending and he said to me, at the end of the month with him, you should do academic medicine. And I said, I have no idea what that means. Again, (laughs) naive. Um, And he taught me what that was. And I was uh, encouraged to think about medical education, academics. And along the way, I met many people who were tremendous leaders who uh, really influenced me and uh, really helped me see a path uh, in academic leadership. And, And that's how I sort of had my entree into academia. Yeah. So on the leadership side of things, what was it that drew you? You had these people there around you encouraging you, but what drew you to the idea of actually being a leader? I knew I wanted to be a medical educator. So despite my parents telling me not to be an educator, I was drawn back to it. 
Um, and they, they were actually thrilled when I found that niche area. And I, I needed to learn how to be a medical educator. I was interested in medical education before there were masters of medical education, before there were a lot of formal training that we have today. And so I was uh, directed to speak to other medical education leaders. And one of the people I was encouraged to speak to was a person at my own school, Dr. Paige Morahan, who told me a lot of the tricks of things to do to be a better educated medical educator. But one of the things she said to me is, Nancy, if you wanna make impact and have influence, you need to have leadership training at every stage of your career. And you need to learn how to do big change management. And interestingly, the year I went to see her was the year she was creating ELAM. Uh. That was 28 years ago. So she really encouraged me. And I was a rule follower. I like to follow people's advice and directions. So I did that. And I actually um, became an ELAM fellow in 2009-10. And my eyes opened up. It was really transformative. All the opportunities there were to lead in a variety of creative ways, innovative ways, I found very exciting. And I learned about myself over time that if there was a big gap, I wanted to figure out how to fill that and make things better and influence the healthcare system. And I could do that by helping others be the best possible at their job, whether it was in medicine, clinically, or in science. So that really excited me. And I learned to love to lead to be able to do that. Do you remember one of the things that opened your eyes about the opportunities and the uh, innovation that was possible in leadership when you first were in the ELAM program? Yes, I do. I remember going to ELAM, having had the experience the year before of being in my own institution where there were a lot of things happening and everybody just sort of complaining all the time. Not everybody, but many complaining. And I know we tend to do that. But when I went to Elam, I saw all these people flip it and say, this is a problem, but what can we do to change to make things better? So it's really just flipping that framework. And that that I found exciting. Um, I also found it eye-opening when a, a lot of very smart, thoughtful people um, in charge of our accrediting bodies will decide there is a rule that has to be followed. And if nobody's interested in leading, it just becomes a mess. So I found I had a gift for stepping up and saying, I'll tackle that. I'll take that on, but I will do it so that the intent is fulfilled. The goodness is fulfilled and we'll move forward. Um, so those lessons I did definitely learn at ELAM. So tell us more about the size and scope of the program and how exactly you go about trying to address this gap of uh, female leadership in healthcare. We are in our 27th year. We have currently over 1,200 graduates of our program, and those women hold leadership positions in approximately 400 institutions across the country currently. Wow. Uh, you mentioned a statistic of half the women deans are from ELAM. We have a new number, which is 75% of the women deans in the country in medicine are from ELAM, and 11 of our graduates were appointed as deans in this past year during the pandemic, which is remarkable. Yeah. Having said that, our main mission is to create equity at every level of leadership in academic medicine. And of all those women deans I just commented on, we are only 19% of the deans of the medical schools in the country. So to achieve equity, we have quite a ways to go. 
So our mission is to bring people to the program. We have uh, 71 fellows in the class this year. Uh, they learn a variety of leadership skills, hard skills such as finance, negotiation, et cetera. Uh, they also learn a lot about their own professional development and they are paired in groups of six women so that they can really build their network within a small cadre of the class, but also across the class. And then when they graduate, they enter into the 1200 other graduates in a network that is incredibly powerful. We hope the power of that network will help lift all women up, uh, not only the people who've graduated from our program, but also all the other women in, in the country. And one of the things we've added quite a bit in our recent curricula is to ensure people have the tools to go back to their own institutions to make big change. So what are some of those tools? Strategies to do culture change. We teach them a lot about organizational dynamics. We give them just concrete tools to help mentor um, others. We open their eyes to concepts around sponsorship and allyship and uh, really encourage them to build programs that will support sponsorship and allyship for all, but in particular women, women with intersectionality and men who are underrepresented in medicine. So when you're making the case to people about why it's important that women are in leadership positions in medicine, what is it that you tell them? What is the particular strength or difference or impact that women make as leaders in healthcare? Well, women add a diverse perspective. And, you know, we know a lot from the business literature. We are always sort of looking at the business world for strategies to improve diversity and things like sponsorship and mentorship programming. Women have a different perspective. We know that more diverse teams have better outcomes. And so right now in our structures, most high level leaders are men and many are white men. And so that there isn't that diversity of perspective. Uh, also, if, if we're thinking about the fact that 77% of the workforce are women, but they're being led by men, we find that that can be a bit challenging. And the people at the table making the decisions are not the people who are on the front lines, or at the mid-levels. So women add that diversity, they will help and sponsor others. It's shown that women are more likely to sponsor others, particularly women than men. So we have a ways to go. Uh, there are challenges though for women in leadership in that when women are appointed into leadership positions, they're often the solo woman. So they're a little bit on their own. They are a little bit more vulnerable. Um, if they make a mistake, it's very visible. Um, and so the vulnerability is definitely there. And unfortunately, it's not always the case that women of high-level leadership will help other women in high-level leadership. So there are a lot of structural things and, and issues that we have to, to work on um, to really support women to advance. In terms of women in the workforce, there's a lot that has been written recently about patients who are cared for by women have better outcomes. And huh. so, yeah, so uh, we do want to support women in all levels of our academic and healthcare structures. Well, as the son of a nurse, I will endorse that completely, right? My mother, my mother always said the same thing. <laughs> Great. Um, so... Talk about the program itself a little bit. Uh, you know, obviously this networking thing is very powerful 
once they're graduates of it. But when they're going through the program, what are some of the core things that folks in this program will learn? Mm-hmm. Um, I should mention it's a year-long program and it's part-time. And so the cohort will come together to do in-person learning and then apply things in their home workplaces. A lot of the main curricular threads, um, well, there are four really. One is on finance and resource allocation, which is something we don't learn about in medical school, in any of our professional schools really, but um, you really need to know the business of medicine. And in particular now, really know the business of medicine. So uh, that is, is a really critical component of the fellowship. The second is the personal and professional leadership effectiveness work. So there are a lot of components to that. And a lot of it is reflection on yourself, receiving 360 degree feedback. Each fellow is paired with a professional coach that they work with um, to do improvement on their own leadership effectiveness and style. Um, A third area is organizational dynamics. So to make all those changes in your institution. You really need to be very facile at that. And for those of us who are doctors, we know that we don't like change. Um, We always say we want change, but it's it's challenging (laughs) to change. Um, And then the fourth part is those communities of leadership practice. So those little groups of six, but also learning how to women, by the way, underinvest in social capital. So women need sometimes extra help learning how to to networking effectively to really help support um, not only their own growth and development as a leader, but also to support efforts that, you know, you need allies and colleagues to make the change happen. And so you need to learn how to do that really well. Every fellow does um, an institutional action project as part of the year. And that is a project that's not related to their typical scholarship or science, but it's a project that they're their dean and other high-level leaders decide is going to be really important to move the school along in its strategic visioning. And the fellow will apply all those skills as they work through that project. And the project also helps raise their visibility in the institution as they do that project so they can apply skills and get more visibility and do something very impactful for their organization. Yeah, that's great. Obviously, this has been a very difficult time for women in the workforce because of COVID. So talk about that a little bit as it pertains to the leadership picture that you pay particular attention to, but just broadly uh, what's going on with women in healthcare because of COVID. Yes. So I was thinking about your your mom, who is a nurse. I mean, uh, there's a really challenging nursing crisis right now. So nurses are, are leaving the field. People are burned out. So the staffing shortages are incredible, which puts a stress and strain on the entire system. I just had a call with several leaders in our organization where many hospitals are on divert. Hospitals, again, are not doing non-emergent surgeries, et cetera. So there's just the constant stress and strain. We are seeing women at mid-level career leaving the workforce, which is actually terrifying because that's our pipeline. And anecdotally, my colleagues who um, mentor many women of color, um, they're seeing a disproportionate number of women of color, so women with intersectionality leaving the workforce, which is extra, extra terrifying. And we know that women are often 
the primary caretakers of young children at home or elder parents or others in their families as they're still trying to juggle everything that they're doing in their day-to-day, often they're the ones also responsible for doing things at the front line, leading at the front line. So there are a lot of challenges. So that burnout in um, women leaving the field is, is really very concerning and alarming. And we're doing everything we can by working with others across other organizations to see how can we partner and get out of our silos to work together to support women. Do you have some thoughts about what might turn some of this around? I mean, there's a lot of talk about retention bonuses and some other tactics like that. Yes. So there are organizations who are looking very carefully at ways to support women. So they're opening their eyes to the idea that women are overly burdened and at risk. And what can those institutions do? There are some funding agencies providing awards to institutions who are innovative and creative and thinking about ways to have daycare backup, for instance, for providers um, to do things to change the timeline for promotion, for instance. So many of our schools have tenure clocks and promotion track clocks that uh, we're trying to figure out ways to support women. We are recognizing already that women are not writing and publishing at the same rate as they were and disproportionately to men. So being aware of that and thinking about how to support women so that they can do their academic scholarship work and don't fall behind or other things. Because that can be a factor in holding them back from promotion, right? If they're not publishing as much. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep, it's all linked. And and then that gets really discouraging and that adds to the burnout problem. Staying with the burnout theme for a second, you know, we've heard a lot about frontline provider burnout, obviously, but what about burnout at the leadership level? What are your thoughts on that? Thank you for asking that. I, it's something I have been very worried about in the last four months in particular. I, I remember feeling in the fall this shift of my colleagues just really just doing everything they could to do the leadership well, to pivot, 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 um, support, support, support. And then all of a sudden I started seeing the fatigue, the actual fatigue on people's faces and the exhaustion. So I think it's really real. Um, We have been in a command and control leadership mode for a long time over emergencies. And we're in that place again with this, most recent round of COVID. Um, And that's exhausting. And it's discouraging when you can't do more proactive leading. So we're reacting, 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 and and that's exhausting. And you don't feel like you're making forward progress. You feel like you're surviving. So I am very concerned about that. And I'm seeing people leave leadership. On the one hand, we'll give opportunity for succession planning and new leaders. But on the other hand, um, it's definitely alarming. And we don't like leadership changes. It, it causes uncertainty and stress in our organizations. So it's better when it's planned and succession planning is organized in a very thoughtful way. Well, and nobody's in a position where they know when this is going to end. Right. Well, they'll be past the crisis. So you can't really start figuring things out from that perspective. Exactly. And every time we think it's getting better, you know, we ha- we all collectively, right, had a big sigh of relief and sort of excitement in June, I guess, in the summer. And then that went away. And then we were starting to feel better again in December. 
And uh, I was surprised uh, sort of in the November, December time, people were starting to open up in-person meetings again, big conferences, you know, that are very energizing for us as professionals. Um, I've started getting invited to in-person events. And then all of a sudden now we're pivoting again. And uh, I don't know how that will go. And so, yeah, we're going to have to think of how we're going to sustain ourselves through these big waves of, of new uncertainty. It's it's challenging. We're coming up on time. And I want to make sure we leave time for one of our favorite questions on the program. Our guests seem to like providing the answers anyway, uh, which is, you know, we have a lot of medical students and early career health professionals listening to this. What advice would you give to them about meeting the challenges of the moment, everything we've been discussing and more, and also about just more broadly approaching their career in healthcare? So I think it's still the best profession to be in, despite all the um, challenges we just talked about. I have been energized by the excitement, ideas, and commitment of our medical students as we've gone through this time. You know, they're not running away from helping. They want to help. They're creative. They're creative in thinking about strategies um, in diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, strategies to do the immunization campaigns for COVID-19. They're ready to pitch in when we have staffing shortages. So uh, their enthusiasm and energy and commitment, I think, are helping uh, those of us who are more senior remind ourselves why we're doing this work. Thank goodness we have so many young people coming into the field. There is a, uh, and I'm sure you've spoken about it with others, there's a phenomenon we call the Tony Fauci phenomenon, which is the number of applications to medical schools are like skyrocketing. Um, the number for our school went from 14,000 for a class of uh, 300 to 17,000. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> a very strong interest in going into medicine. So I'm very excited about that. In terms of thinking about your own career, it's really finding your passion area. That's what gives you joy. And it doesn't mean that every day, all day long, you're working where you have the most passion. But if you find that sweet spot of either it's clinical care or some administrative piece or teaching or science, it is not a job. It's just a joy to do what we do every day. Spoken by someone who sounds like they found their sweet spot. I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. And on that note, I want to thank you very much for being on the show with us today, Dr. Spector. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.